Welcome to the Compass Podcast, featuring Chris Shandro and the Compass team. We hope this message is just for you. So I'm going to stretch your brains a little bit this morning, do a little math, get you guys, get the blood pump into your mind a little bit. Does anybody remember if-then statements from school? Anybody remember any of those? Like, we got a couple, so let's, yeah, this is going to be fun then. Okay, if-then statements are, they're these deductive reasoning statements where you kind of extrapolate a fact or a set of information based on some facts that are given to you. So let's, let's practice this. So this is a good one. If 50% of the population is over 40, then what is the remaining population? Well done. Okay, so that's an if-then statement. Uh, Jane, Jane raised her hand. She, and you know, I noticed Jane, Jane's a little bit kind of a rule follower. She was the kid in class who had to hold her arm up with her other hand because it was just sore out because she wanted the teacher to pick her. I want to tell you, I appreciate that you didn't answer because you weren't called on. Well done. Okay, so let's try another one. Um, if, this is good, isn't it? If Jane has 10 pieces of candy and she gives away three of them, then how much candy does Jane have left? Seven. Oh my gosh, that's so good. Jane, do you have any comment on that you want to? What type of candy would you like? She would like Butterfingers. Okay, so I should have said 10 Butterfingers. Jane would never have 10 Tootsie Rolls, just, for, just so everybody knows, because they're disgusting. So if-then statements, man, they're, they are, they're based on math, right? And math is rock solid. Math is like, it's natural law. Math is unbending, which is why if-then statements work. You can use deductive reasoning in those things because half of 100 is always 50. Or, you know... 10 minus 3 is always going to be 7. It is rational, it is set, it is like natural law. But if statements are not only used in math, in fact, we use if statements all the time in regular life because this, this, there's this power in this one word. This word has so much power, if. Let, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you. Okay, so this is how we use these statements in our life every day. Just work with me. If... I go to work, then I get paid, right? That's, now, some of you guys, I expected some people to say, if I go to work, I get the satisfaction of a job well done. But no one in this room said that. Point first service. Okay. Um, if I touch a hot stove, then you get burned. Excellent. If I spend money on this hamburger, then... I get, someone said, someone said, I get to eat it. Someone said, I love to eat it. I would have said, then I don't get to spend money on this cup of coffee because coffee. Okay, how about this? If I watch this YouTube video, then I'll watch a thousand more. Well done. See, the, the actual correct answer as I'd written it down is if I watch this YouTube video, then I will get sucked into a black hole of linked videos for at least an hour. And in parentheses, probably on the toilet, my legs will fall asleep. Okay. And that's Michelle's answer, not mine. Come on, guys. Gross. I would never do that. That's Michelle. Um, okay. Now, some of these if statements are not, like, they, they're based on these, like, natural laws that exist in the world. Not necessarily math, but some of them are just personal to us, right? And it applies to me, but maybe not everyone else. I have one, and it's, if I drink caffeine after 2 o'clock, then I will literally be up all night long. Anybody with me? Yeah, I talked about that one this morning, and uh, I was sharing with Mitch, and Mitch was like, oh man, you got to be careful, Chris, when you're drinking caffeine, you're playing a young man's game. <laughs> He's like, you're cruising for a bruising. I'm an old man playing a young man's game. <laughs> Half of life, I think, like 50% of life 
is really based on some of these if statements that we, that we use to calculate the decisions we're going to make for our lives. I think half of the decisions we make are based on these if-then statements. And we use them to make either the right decisions or the wrong decisions, depending on where we fall on the if-then equation and what we really decide that we want to do with it. We use if statements for money decisions. We use if statements for relationship decisions. We use it for career decisions. We even use these things for spiritual decisions. And that's actually what I want to talk about today and over the next several weeks in this message series called If. I want to talk about the power of one specific if statement that God makes and the implications that it has for us in our spiritual lives and how it affects our lives in general overall. And so we're going to take a look at this one specific passage out of 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. Now you're going to, you're going to hear this verse a lot over the next several weeks. So I'm going to read it. It just goes like this. First, or 2 Chronicles chapter 7, 14. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways... I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sins and restore their land. So we're going to spend the next five weeks talking about this specific statement and breaking it down. But today I want to start off really just maybe with looking at the broader context of if. And the broader context of if as it relates to what God has in store for us and the plans that he has for our life. And now to do that, I want to I need to take a look at some of the background of where this passage kind of comes from. So just, just a tip. In reading the Bible, if, if you're reading a passage, you're reading a section, and you want to really understand what it means, context is important. What comes before it? What comes after it? What is happening around it? Context matters. For example, if, you know, if my daughter, you know, if I hear in the other room, and she's like, Dad, I need you to help me. There's a pest in here. And I run in. If it's a spider, I'm going to kill it. If that pest is her brother, I'm probably not going to kill him, okay? So context, probably not. Context matters. So anyway, so let's take a look at the beginning of this chapter, just a couple verses before this, so we can see what it is, what's happening around this when God makes this if-then statement. So in verse 11, it starts this way. It said, So Solomon finished the temple of the Lord as well as the royal palace. He completed everything he had planned to do in the construction of the temple and the palace. And then one night, the Lord appeared to Solomon and said something that we're going to get to in a moment. Because we need to understand, this whole thing is happening with the background of Solomon building a temple to the Lord. Now, if you know about the people of Israel back in Old Testament times where this is happening, uh, the, the, peop- the nation of Israel had really just kind of gotten started. Solomon was only the third king of Israel this time. Now, the nation had existed in its, in its set state for, for several decades, but as, as only the third king, they had not built um, a temple to God. And, and his father, David, he had this dream of building this place for God. Now, before they had settled, the people of Israel, uh, they worshiped God in, in what was called a tabernacle, which essentially was just a giant portable tent. And when they would travel around, before they had their own land, they would stop at a place, they would pull out all the stakes, put up all the canvas, and they would set up the tabernacle tent. And that was the, central, that was the center of worship for the people of Israel. And in all this time that they lived in their own nation, they had their own land, they had never built a permanent home, a permanent place of worship, a permanent home for God. They still had this portable tent tabernacle. And David had this dream. He wanted to build a house for God, a central location, a home base for the people of Israel to worship him. 
David spent decades planning this thing. He drew up blueprints. He saved money in his bank account. All the money he needed to, to build it was, was there. The blueprints were all done. But David got too old and he couldn't finish it. And so he handed the plans over to his son Solomon to take it over the finish line. And Solomon spent several years uh, in the very beginning of when he became king of Israel, building and then finally finishing the temple of God. Now, again, just something, some other background is that this story takes place in the Old Testament. Now, if you don't know a lot about the Bible, maybe you're not a Bible person, maybe you're not even a, a Christian or a follower of Jesus here today, and so all this stuff is kind of weird and whatever, this is going to be interesting to you. So the Bible is broken down really into two major sections or two major divisions. You've got the Old Testament and you've got the New Testament. The Old Testament is, is comprised of really a lot of, of Jewish law and Jewish history. It's very Jewish. In fact, modern Judaism still uses the Old Testament today and views it as, as, their, as Jewish scripture. Uh, and then, so the Old Testament is everything that came before Jesus. Then Jesus came, and from Jesus on, everything after that is the New Testament. And Jesus took the teachings of Judaism, he took the Old Testament, and he just did something new. And and God did a new thing through Jesus and created this kind of new set of writings and new teachings and a new way to look at our relationship with God in the New Testament. Now, in the Old Testament, God was building a temple. In the New Testament, God is building a church. The temple, physical space made of stone and marble and fabric and, you know, beautiful, stunning. A central location that stays in one spot. In the New Testament, a church that's made up of people. Not the building, but it's the people of God. And God resides in us and with us. In the temple, it was the one spot where God's presence was. And now in the New Testament, we are a people who God's presence lives in us. But here's what's cool. Even though the Old Testament and New Testament are different, the temple and the church are different, God's goal in building both is the same. God's goal in building both was to create a place and a people that belonged to him. A people who loved him and loved others and were taking God's message of love and relationship of reconciliation to him out into the world. In Judaism, in ancient Old Testament times, it was a place that people were called to. In the New Testament times, in our day, in us, it is a people that goes out into the world taking the gospel, the message of God's love and Jesus to the world. But God was building the same thing, a people that were his own. And this is God's heart. This is his purpose in all of this. It's important to understand that. So, background. Solomon's building a temple. It continues. God appears to Solomon. He says this. He says, I have heard your prayer and I have chosen this temple as the place for making sacrifices. Now, at times I might shut up the heavens so that no rain falls or command grasshoppers to devour your crops or send plagues among you. Now, stick a pin in that. We're going to come back to that because that's like, huh, what? So then it continues. God says, then, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Okay, this is the if statement we've already looked at context. Solomon has just built this temple for God, and God is saying this, if you will do this, then I will, I'll forgive you, I'll heal you, I'll be with you. And then God continues. He goes from talking to the people of Israel to, through Solomon, directly speaking to Solomon. He says, as for you, if you, faith, if you faithfully follow me, as, your, as David your father did, obeying all my commands, decrees, and regulations, then I will establish the throne of your dynasty. For I made this covenant with your father David when I said one of your descendants will always rule over Israel. 
So we have a second if-then statement that God is making directly to Solomon. And then come, there's a third one, and it says this, the next one. But if you or your descendants abandon me and disobey the decrees and commands I've given you, and if you serve and worship other gods, then I will uproot the people from this land that I have given them. I will reject this temple that I have made holy to honor my name. Now, in this, we see these three if-then statements. And we're going to get into the meat of these statements in just a second. But, like, broadly, there's something that's really consistent across this. And that is the certainty with which God speaks. Like, God doesn't say, if you do this, then I might show up and I might take care of that and I might do this. If you do this, then maybe um, if you do it to my liking or, you know, maybe I'll pop in if I'm not too busy, uh, if I'm not watching YouTube videos with Michelle, maybe I'll show up and I will do this for you. No, God speaks with such certainty. If you do this, then I will. If you do this, then I will. There's a certainty. There is this dependability, this this. This, this way that God is speaking, that, that he's, he's almost literally saying, this is like mathematics. In the same way that two plus two is four, if you do this, then I will do this. And what is God's goal in the key if statement that he lays out for us? What is God's goal for his people and for Solomon in what he's saying here? And will you do me a favor? Will you go back to the very first slide, Second um, Chronicles 7.14? Let's look at this. We can find God's glory here. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and I will do this. I will forgive their sins and I will restore their land. God has two goals for us, particularly in this if statement, and that is this. A freed people and a healed land. That means this, okay, as an individual, as a person, standing alone, God looks at you in relationship to you, and he wants you to be free. He wants you to be free from, from sin, from, from shame, from guilt, from brokenness, from, from, from the things of life that break us and tear us down, from the things that we do that break us and tear us down, from the things that are done to us that break us and tear us down. God wants you to walk in freedom from sin. He wants you to be free. And then bigger picture, us together as a people, God wants to heal our land. I mean, you look around. I mean, you like the state of our state, okay, the state of our nation, the state of our world. It is not too difficult to just pop your head up and look at the news and go, man, we live in some messed up times. There's some messed up stuff that's happening in our world. And God's heart, God's goal is for us to be a people who are free in a land that is healed, in a land of people that are reconciled to each other and who are reconciled to God. A, a land that has people who, whose relationship and connections to each other, there's not disunity, but there's love, there's peace between each other, and there's peace between our land and God. This is God's heart. This is his goal for us. And God's response to the spiritual if equations in our life. This is so cool. His response to the spiritual if equations in our life with his goal of bringing freedom and healing, his response is as dependable and as certain as math. It's as dependable and as certain as the rising and the setting of the sun. If you, then I will. 
God will. Now, we know God's heart, his goal for us is to be a people who are free in a land that's healed and reconciled. But there is that one kind of weird thing in there where he's like, well, bring that back up. Bring up, um, will you do me a favor? Bring up 14 again. I'm sorry, I'm putting my computer guys on. They're Johnny on the spots. Um, no, here's what I want you to do. Bring up Second Chronicles 7.12, second slide. Okay, this is like, if I'm just sitting across the table and I'm talking to God, and God's like, oh, next one, guys. Sorry. And I'm talking to God, and I'm like, God, I got a lot going on, and they need some help. He's like, you know what, Chris? I've heard your prayer, and I just want you to know that, like, I've chosen Compass as, you know, this place where my presence is going to be. And then he says this, but hey, just so you know, at times I may shut up the heavens so no rain comes. Or, you know, I might command grasshoppers to come and eat your crops and crawl on your face and send plagues among you. Just know that at times I'm going to do that. Like, I read that, and it's like, is that not like... Like, I love, the, I love what comes after this, but, but when I read that, I'm like, okay, why? I mean, what is, what's up with that? Why is, the, why is God almost leveraging, maybe for some of us, what feels like a, a threat or, or a warning to us? I mean, rain and, or stopping rain and sending plagues and grasshoppers, why would God do that? And I think we need to understand this to really understand the breadth of this if statement that God has for us and the power of it. So when my daughter Cameron, she was our first, she was about two years old, and you know how kids are in their terrible twos, and like, they're at an age where they understand what no means, and they understand what, what you're saying, but they're also young enough that they can pretend that they don't, so parents don't be fooled, they know, they know. Okay, so Cameron was that age, and, and we're, she was not on baby food anymore, she was eating like human people food, and I, I remember this vividly. She was sitting in her high chair, and we were going to feed her green beans for the first time. Because, like, with your first child, right, you do everything right and healthy. It's like, oh, I've got fresh vegetables and all the vitamins and the nutrition. So my first child, she, no sugar. Oh, God forbid she eats any sugar. I wouldn't, I want her to be healthy, right? But then, like, by your last kid, you're like, it's dinner, eat cotton candy, I don't care, just be quiet, you know. So, but like, we want to do everything right, we got to feed her green beans, she's got to eat her green beans, she's got to be healthy. And so we bring this plate of green beans, and we put it on her little, like, high chair tray, and she looks at it, and she starts poking it around with her finger, we're like, okay, Terry's like, okay, Cameron, are you ready, gonna eat some green beans, they're gonna be so good. And so, Terry gets a green bean on a fork, and she holds it up to Cameron's mouth, she's like, okay, eat the green bean, and Cameron's like, She's like, oh, come on, open your mouth. Cameron's like, eh, no. It's like, oh, you got to eat it. Come on, open your mouth. And then she does that thing that little kids do where they turn their head and, like, you're sticking the fork into their cheek. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> so she does that, and Terry's like, Cameron, come on. And here comes the plane. Here comes the train. Here comes whatever cool thing we want to, you know, eat food off of. Just put it in and eat it. And she would not do it. So she's like, okay, let's try this. Let's pick up. She picks up a green bean. She makes Cameron pick it. Put it in your mouth. And she, Cameron would not eat the green beans. And like 10 minutes, 15 minutes go by and just fighting with her. And she refused. And I'll just be honest. Like, it wasn't like cute, cute, like, oh, isn't this baby sweet? Like, parents who say that, you try to use that to justify your child's outright defiance. <laughs> no. And so she was just in, she was in rebellion. It was like the sin of witchcraft unto me. Like, I'll just put it that way. So, so like 15 minutes of this has gone by. And so I'm like, okay, I, I come in as the dad. And I'm like, okay, Cameron, I was like, you need to eat these green beans or you are going to sit in this chair until you do. 
okay? So if you don't eat these green beans, you're going to sit in this chair all night. Mm. Turns her face, wouldn't do it. I'm like, okay. And so Terry's like, okay, eat the beans. She's like, nope. Okay, so we walked away. We wait five minutes. Karen's just sitting in a chair all by herself. We come back. You ready to eat the green beans? Mm. Wait five minutes, come back. Are you ready to eat the beans? No. So Terry and I, like, we went and, like, watched a show, like, half hour. I mean, we were just watching TV and just let her sit in this chair with, you know, food on her, you know, beans getting cold. And, like, they don't understand, like, you're going to eat this, and now it's going to be cold and gross. But whatever. She, may, hopefully her logic has improved since then. I don't know. But <laughs> 20 minutes passes. 25 minutes passes. 30 minutes passes. At, like, the 35-minute mark, we come back over, and we're like, okay, Cameron, this is, because we just, we had enough time to watch a show. And then we came back, we're like, this is, Cameron, no joke, it's time to eat these green beans. You will eat these beans right now. And she's like, mm. Like, do it. So she grabs, she grabs some in her hand, like one or two green beans, and she takes it to her mouth, and she starts smearing them all around her closed mouth as if it will fool us into thinking that, like, because they disintegrated on her face, that maybe some of it actually went into her closed mouth. And we're like, no, no, eat the beans. Ugh, she wouldn't do it. So we went and watched another show. And I kid you not, Cameron sat in that high chair for over an hour until she finally ate those green beans. And I want you to know, she did eat those green beans. And to this day, I still don't think she likes green beans and it probably was because of that trauma. But, <laughs> but here's the thing, for us, as it relates to how we parent our children, we parent our children with a lot of if statements. If you do this, then this will happen. Because actions and consequences, you know, right? And we want them to understand that the actions you take have consequences. And so, and, and we wouldn't like necessarily like yell a lot at our kids when they did something that was wrong. We, for example, you know, our kids know if you push or hit your brother or sister, then you will go into your room for the rest of the night and you're done. It's just over. Light off. It could be 4.30 in the afternoon. Good luck. Have fun. Light off. The door is closed. That is what's going to, and they knew that. And so when one of them would push or hit another one, we wouldn't usually, we wouldn't yell. We'd just take them and say, okay, you've pushed your brother. Come on, time to go into your room. Put him on the bed. And she'd be like, I want you to know you chose this. This was your decision. You knew what was going to happen, and you chose to be in your room all night. I didn't want to do this. This wasn't my choice. You chose to be in your room. So whatever the consequences of an action were, you, you chose to not eat your French fries when you decided that you were going to spill your drink on the floor. It was your decision. I'm sorry. You chose it. And the thing is, when raising our kids, we wanted to make sure that they understood that actions and consequences were connected. Choices and consequences are a package deal. And it's not just for babies. Choices and consequences are a package deal in every aspect of our lives. And whether those consequences are good and whether those consequences are bad, they're connected. If you put your hand in the fire, you will get burned. It's a choice and a consequence. If you don't eat your vegetables, your body will become sick and not healthy. If you go out in the rain, you will get wet. If you live your life rejecting God's design, then you will walk in the consequences of the decision to walk outside of God's perfect plan for your life. And that means this, that just like natural law, it means this, that when we look at what God is saying in this passage, 
we don't necessarily need to see it as a warning or a threat or a promise or a guarantee of punishment because that's not what it is. That's not God's heart. That's not what he wants for us at all. The thing that we miss in all this is that sometimes we look at these things backward. And we just see a God who's waiting for us to screw up. And when we screw up, he's going to be like, yeah, I knew it. And then he brings the hammer down on us. It's just, uh, it's just nothing but punishment over and over again. And we look at it completely backwards because God is not looking to punish us for something that we did wrong. God understands this, that we are already in a state of doing something wrong. He's not promising punishment. Instead, he's making a, he's making a promise of reconciliation to him. God is saying this. He's saying, listen. When the consequences of your sin, when the consequences of your choices and your decisions are weighing heavily on you, when the consequences of what you've decided to do to walk away from me, to walk outside of my design and outside of my plan, when you step outside of my perfect path and the consequences of the natural spiritual laws of not following my path are weighing on you heavily, I'm not mad. You can come back to me and I will welcome you back and I will take you in and I will make you whole. This if-then statement is not a promise of punishment when we do something wrong. As, as much as it is, is a guarantee that God is waiting for us with open arms when the consequences of our choices are weighing too heavily on us. That's why in this passage he says this. He says, if, if you will turn from your wicked ways, it's the assumption that, that the consequences of our choices are the consequences of our own wicked choices, our own poor decisions, our own desire to do life on our own and walk outside of God's perfect design for us. But his promise is not one of punishment. His promise is one of redemption. His promise is one of freedom. His promise is one of healing. Because God's heart is that he has a freed people who are living in a healed land. And so there's this one if-then statement that I've kind of put in my own words, but this one if-then statement that supersedes all others, that's, that's just, that stands above everything else, and it's this. It's that if you belong to God, then he leverages his life for yours. If you belong to God, he leverages his life. He leverages his strength. He leverages his love, his power. He leverages it for you. And he doesn't just leverage his life for you when you're doing all the right things. God leverages his life for you when you've turned to your own wicked ways. And he says, if you turn back to me, I will do anything I can. I will move any mountain. I will forgive any sin. I will make any path for you to come back to me. And I will welcome you with open arms, unequivocally, with, with no expectation. Because that's who our Father is. And he demonstrated this love for us in Jesus, who literally laid down his life for us. And here's the coolest part of all of this, is that rather than looking at if statements as ones of threat or, or ones that give us warning because we're afraid of the consequences of something, and being afraid of ifs are always about the consequences of something, now it's not about consequences and it's not about punishment, but now in Christ, if statements of our lives become about possibility. The possibility of what God could do in your life. The possibility of what God could do in your family, in your marriage, in your home. Your life becomes one of possibility. We turn
turn to God. If we turn to God, he'll make us a freed people in a healed land. If half, we talk about this, half of life is made up of these if statements. And I think that can be scary for some of us again because we are afraid of bad consequences, afraid of bad things happening to us. But in God, we don't have to be afraid of those bad things because the if statements now all lead to one place because if is half of all life. And when we walk in Christ, when we turn to God, the outcome, the possibility that always ends in the if statements is not life of breathing, not a life where we just chart our own path, choose our own course, and just try to do the best we can. I'm not talking about that kind of life. I'm talking about the life that can only come from God who created you, who loves you, who has a plan and a purpose for your life, who wants to guide your every step so that you can live the best life that you could possibly live, the most fulfilled, purposeful life that you could ever possibly live, that goes beyond a career or a job or making money, but goes to to the heart of purpose on why you exist. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and I'll forgive them and I will heal their land. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for what you're speaking to us about the life that you want us to experience in you and how we can get it. God, I'm so grateful that at your heart, Lord, that there's, there's no desire for punishment. God, that that's not who you are and that seeing you that way is a complete misunderstanding of who you are and what you desire for us. You don't desire to punish us. You're not warning us of what could happen when the hammer's gonna fall on us. Instead, God, you're promising us that when the weight of our sin is too heavy, that when we turn to you, that you will always welcome us home. Thank you for that unconditional, faultless love. And I ask God that for each and every single one of us, Lord, that you would help us to take a new perspective on the if questions of our lives. And that for every one of those questions, that the first answer is to turn to you and is an understanding that we belong to you, knowing that when we belong to you, you will leverage everything. You will leverage your life. You will leverage your strength. You will leverage your power, your grace, your mercy, and your love to move mountains for us because we are yours. God, lock that truth into our hearts. Let it change us. Let it make us new, God. Remove the barrier of shame. Remove the barrier of guilt. Remove the hurdles, God, of fear of punishment that keep us from running to you, God, because you are not a God who seeks to punish. You are a God who seeks to redeem and to reconcile. And I'm so grateful for that, Jesus, and I thank you for your love. I pray it all in your awesome and holy name. Amen. Thank you for joining us at Compass. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions about Compass or this message, contact us at our website, www.compassbn.com.